As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Meander Mile, episode six, uh, of which we're going to be covering uh, uh, Dean Street. Um, if you've listened to the previous episode, I covered Wardour Street, which is the street just to the west of us. Uh, today I'm doing Dean Street, which basically goes from Oxford Street down to Shaftesbury Avenue. And to my left-hand side uh, is going to be Frith Street, which we'll do next week. Um, so this isn't a regular episode for uh, new listeners. This is just a kind of an... An episode that I'm putting out while I'm doing the research for the, uh, the rest of the season. So if you want to join in, you're welcome to just listen to the episode. Or uh, if you go to it, there's a link in the show notes. And what that will do, that will show you loads of pictures, which shows you all the locations that we're looking at. Uh, there's also a Google Maps street view that you can look at. And you can actually follow the route if you, look, if you want to. Or if you're really crazy, uh, you can actually come to Soho stand on the I'm currently on the corner of Dean Street and Carlisle Street and follow the route as I walk it it's actually quite a nice morning today it's a bank holiday morning when I recorded the last one it was the first uh, the first start of the Saturday on the uh, bank holiday it was a bit of a mess out there everyone was kind of drunk by about one o'clock guys were tottering along puking everywhere ladies were wearing kind of their worst outfits it's weird it's almost as if they'd kind of locked them away in the cupboard for a year and a half and then pulled them out and thought, oh, that looks, that looks classy. They didn't look classy anymore. I think people, after a year of wearing pajamas, have forgotten how to be stylish and classy. Anyway, it'll take us a while to get used to it, won't it? So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're ready to start, let's kick off. Uh, don't forget, uh, you can uh, go onto a link in the uh, show notes underneath. It will show you all the pictures and there's kind of uh, a map as well. But I'm currently on the corner of Dean Street and Carlisle Street, just off Oxford Circus. Uh, so, if we have a little look to our left, uh, just to the left of Pizza Pilgrims, you will see a black door. This is a door that we've been to before uh, in episode 94, which was the Terror of Maltese London. If you remember that one, that was, uh, that was one of those episodes where I kind of dug in and thought, oh, do you know, everyone always talks about gangsters and how they're all feared and respected and how everything they do is kind of amazing and brilliant. But actually, when you look into the truth of their pasts, 
what they are is actually quite scared people. They're quite terrified of, of kind of being usurped by other people. And uh, this was a prime example. So this was uh, on Tuesday the 5th of June 1948 in the basement. Uh, there was a Maltese kind of gambling den in there. Um, two brothers had kind of been harassed. They were called the Farouge brothers. They'd been harassed by a local gangster called Amabal Rika, who apparently word had got around that he was, uh, that he'd murdered a man over in Malta. And everyone was absolutely terrified of him and word got around that he was absolutely uh, horrific. He carried a gun and everyone was in fear for their lives. But actually, uh, when I looked into his past, it turned out he'd been messing around with a gun with his friend. He'd shot his friend in his leg. Um, and uh, he was actually charged with discharging a weapon in a public place. He actually served him a couple of months. So actually he wasn't a murderer, but being gangsters, they liked to play on the myth. And therefore everyone around these streets all believed that he was the terror of Maltese London. Have a look in the press, you'll see the pictures. It says, terror of Maltese London, but he wasn't really. Actually, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the listeners who's actually related to Amabar Rika, very kindly, I can't distribute it because I, I promised to keep it a secret, but uh, they actually sent me a picture of Amabar Rika, and he is exactly not what I thought he would look like. He's entirely different from the descriptions that I was given at the time that everyone kind of said he was big and large and scary. He wasn't, he looks like a regular chap. He actually looks quite decent as well. So uh, that's slightly fascinating. The, the, the perception between who people really are and what they really are. So. That was number three. Uh, we're still on the junction of Dean Street and Carlisle Street at the moment. So if you take an immediate left, uh, sorry, an immediate right, and you look straight uh, ahead right, you will see a very tall white building with a kind of a weird sculpture on it that looks like a kind of an angel. Um, that is 17 Carlisle Street. That was originally Carlisle House. Uh, this is a story I only dis just discovered a couple of days ago, but I think it's kind of interesting and, and quite... It's interesting in a way that when we do look at murder in the streets of, of London and especially Soho, we kind of forget that actually we've got the Blitz. I, I've mentioned about it a lot in Murder Mile, but actually we forget that actually the Blitz was a daily event, especially across the, the, the first 150 days of the war. That was pretty much Blitz every single day, which is why it was called a Blitz. Many deaths on every street. So here's a little story that I discovered recently that I thought I'd tell you about, uh, which happened uh, at Carlisle House, number 17 Carlisle Street, which is why that building exists there today, but it actually replaced something else. Um, so on the 11th of May, 1941, at about 12.45 a.m., Carlisle Street, literally where we are now, uh, was hit by a single high explosive bomb. It's, it's unsure whether it was a 500 kilo bomb or whether there was two of them. Uh, don't forget, this is the Blitz, there's lots of bombs going off and there's still unexploded bombs being, being found today. Um, the explosion tore through the western end of Carlisle Street. So basically, from where we are now, um, literally this side of Carlisle Street, uh, back side of Nellie Dean down there. And if you're going down uh, Dean Street, it's literally right down past St Anne's Court. So it's a, it's a real, we'll get there eventually. I'll show you where St Anne's Court is and the Richmond buildings, but basically all of those were decimated, which when you look at it, it explains why there's so many facades to the building that are still there, but there's very few original buildings that are still there. Um, basically Carlisle House, which is this building, 17 Carlisle Street, right to the right, was entirely demolished. It was a, a, an elegant 18th century 
uh, city mansion that was originally the home of the British Board of Film Censors from uh, 1936, so they'd actually only been there a couple of years. Uh, BBFC, as most people know, are now on uh, Soho Square, just to our left. Uh, that night, during the bombing, uh, City of Westminster ARP, who were the air raid wardens, lost two colleagues who were on fire watching duty in Carlisle House. Uh, George Frederick Hydes, who was 42 years old and was an air raid warden, and his son Martin Roger Hydes, who was 14, and he was an ARP messenger. Uh, both of them uh, were in 17 Carlisle Street at the moment. They were also living there as well. Um, it turns out that 14-year-old Martin Hyde, he was actually uh, evacuated uh, before the Blitz actually started, the, the, the full extent of the Blitz, he was evacuated out into the country because he was a young boy. But his parents missed him so much uh, that they wanted him to come back home. So he returned back home to Soho. Uh, he was living in uh, 17 Carlisle Street with his dad because they're ARP wardens, they had a space there. Uh, unfortunately, that's exactly where the bomb hit and they were both killed that day. Uh, in total, six people uh, were trapped in the rubble. Um, and there was also a gentleman called Warden Summers who was also killed as well, along with another messenger boy uh, who apparently was standing in the doorway at the time that the bombings happened and he was killed outright. Um, so I think that's one of, the, one of those little stories that uh, kind of we forget happens. I think we, we just accept that, you know, uh, the air raids happened, there was lots of uh, death and destruction and we always see pictures of buildings blown up, but I think we often forget that in there is people, people with real lives. Uh, I'm going to tell you another story now. This is uh, actually on the left-hand side of the street. So we haven't even moved from the corner of uh, Carlisle Street and Dean Street at the moment. We're still, still in the same place, which is uh, very, very handy. Um, so if you look to your left, you will see uh, that is Soho Square, where you see all the trees, that is Soho Square. Interestingly, underneath Soho Square is, is a huge air, air raid shelter. The entrance to that is actually on this side of the street. Uh, no one really knows much about it. It is still there. Uh, I think, obviously, some people have tried to turn it into a restaurant because it's, you know, uh, space in London is at a premium, but I think there's a real problem with air conditioning down there and, and light and, you know, there's restrictions. Anyway, corner of uh, Carlisle Street, the, the far uh, eastern side, and the corner of the Soho Square. Um, this happened on the 5th of January 1817, so quite more than 200 years ago. An incredibly poor lady who was called Margaret Thatcher, not that one, not our former Prime Minister, a different one. Um, if you can appreciate uh, 1817, this was an era before any kind of national health service. Basically in the era, if you couldn't afford to hire a doctor, you didn't get well. You just got sick. Thank God for the NHS. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, now no one really knows much about her. No one really knows her age. It was kind of hard to determine how old she was. Um, but a gentleman came across her and she seemed very emaciated, very sick. Uh, she seemed to have had several different types of cancers. Uh, she was unable to feed or clothe herself uh, and she was found slumped in the gutter. She, she was still alive at the time. Um, according to him, he, uh, he said she had some kind of wasting disease. So she, she was so emaciated, they really didn't know what age she was. They, they know very little about her, to be honest. Uh, what we do know is that she came from St Giles in the Rookery, which, as we've mentioned before, the Rookery is literally just over the street. That's that incredibly poor part of 
town where all the slums were, uh, right at the back of the Horseshoe Brewery. So if you remember when the Horseshoe Brewery, the vat exploded and it flooded all those houses and people drowned, uh, that is the rookery, one of the poorest parts of this area. Uh, and this area was incredibly poor. Um, now, over the other side of Soho uh, Square is, is uh, the church over there. Um, and they actually have a watch house on it. It was built in 1801. It was actually uh, a shelter for the man who protected the graveyard because there was a lot of grave robbing going on around that time, which we'll dive into very shortly. Um, the watchman there, was his name was John Pert. Um, he said on the Friday night about nine o'clock, he was going about his rounds and he saw the lady sitting upon the steps of Mr. Park's doorway in Carlisle Street, which is uh, apparently it's number three, so it's just at the end. Um, he asked uh, what was the matter. She said that she was very ill and very cold. As you can appreciate, it is, uh, it's, I think it's winter there, isn't it? Isn't it January? Yeah, height of January, so she's absolutely freezing. He asked if, he, he, if she knew anyone in the house. She was like, no, no. So they, they knocked on the door. They said, can you get some hot water and something? They did. They gave her a gin to kind of help revive her. She was still struggling. Uh, and he was like, Okay, um, the workhouse is literally opposite where the church is. Uh, they're going to take her into the church, uh, sorry, into the workhouse, so at least she can get a kind of a parish doctor who's there and kind of a bed and something to eat and hopefully try and revive her. Um, uh, the, the watchman came along. He had a, a gentleman of the, the workhouse to kind of pick her up and they'd basically taken her over Soho Square towards the church and that is probably about 300 feet. Um, Unfortunately, uh, by the time they got her to the workhouse, she was so sick, she was so emaciated uh, that they didn't know that she'd actually died. She was una unable to kind of walk herself. They were kind of carrying her, her kind of feet dragging a little bit, kind of doing kind of half steps. By the time she got there, she was already dead. The problem was, even the doctor said that by the time they got her there, she was so emaciated and sick and pale and, and cold even he didn't know at that point if she was still alive or not. Do you know, they, some people said she was alive, some people said she was dying, some people said, said she was dead. Unfortunately, she was already dead. Um, there was an inquest into her death, which was held at the Golden Lion pub, which is at the bottom of Dean Street that we'll visit very shortly. Um, th this is an era where um, even like late 1800s, many inquests and court cases were being held in pubs. Uh, and quite often, uh, if there was an inquest into a murder, they would bring the body from the autop, uh, from the uh, uh, from the hospital, into the pub, so that people could kind of look at it. Do you, do you know who were the jury on the coroner's courts and the criminal trials? Um, at the inquest into the death of Margaret Thatcher, uh, they said uh, this is uh, on the court records. Said her death was determined that she had died by visitation of God. So what they're saying is basically. Uh, natural causes. It's a quite a sad story. I think I kind of, I think that's kind of, as we know, quite a perfect kind of murder mile story. Uh, the one that we've heard many times about hardship in life. Um, just moving us down a little bit further now. Uh, we are walking down Dean Street. I've just passed the Nelly Dean pub, a very nice pub. Might pop in for a little socially distanced pint later on. I say socially distanced. It's just me by myself. Of course, it's going to be socially distanced. Um, so um, just passing a little phone box here. And on my right hand side, you will see St Anne's Court, which is a court going down. Uh, that is kind of our route down to uh, Wardour Street just there. 
Now, I stumbled across this by accident a couple of days ago. Uh, uh, I was trying to find out more about this case, but unfortunately, there's very little, le very little information that's actually concrete out there. So, on the corner of where we are now, Dean Street and St Anne's Court, this was on, uh, believed to be September 1971. Um, the, right, the, the fingers of a right hand were found in the street. Uh, they said they were uh, possibly from a male adult. Uh, it, looks as, it looked as if they had been removed with possibly bulk, bulk cutters. Um, the pathologist said that it was a relatively blunt instrument. It wasn't anything sharp like a butcher's knife. Uh, it hadn't been, it'd been snipped, it hadn't been sliced. The owner was never unknown and it was never determined uh, why they were there or actually who they belonged to. Um, Maybe it was an accident, maybe it was a DIY accident from a builder, uh, maybe it was gang related. Maybe uh, they were stolen from a hospital uh, or a morgue and, you know, maybe someone misplaced them. We don't know, but uh, yet someone's fingers were found in the street and we don't know why. We don't know why. Um, a nice little story there. Hopefully you're having your breakfast at the moment. You're going, mmm, lovely. I was just tucking into some lovely sausages and now and now we don't want to. Um, just so you know, remember I mentioned that the uh, World War II bomb had actually blasted out uh, the Richmond building. So if you're looking at St Anne's Court, the Richmond buildings are the buildings just, just beyond that on the right hand side. So all of this area was basically blown out except for the, the facades on the front of the buildings were still intact and many of them have kind of survived or been recouped, but the back ends of the houses were, were kind of uh, badly demolished. Right now, I'm standing in front of uh, 14 Dean Street, uh, which is on the left-hand side. It's a very kind of a, a, a vague brown building with a kind of a, um, well, it's easy to spot. It's the NatWest building. Um, not the NatWest building, it's just actually NatWest Bank. This is number 14 Dean Street. Um, this is believed to be where the location is. I'm currently uh, digging in deep into the story at the moment, so this might not be exactly where it happened, but... This next story is going to be coming soon to Murder Mile, so when I've done my research, you will get a full episode on this. Um, so this murder happened 22nd of October 1963, so that's exactly one month before the assassination of JFK. 21-year-old um, Margaret Ann Haldane of uh, Iberian Avenue over in Croydon. She was a typist over at the War Office. Uh, she was stabbed to death in a crowded Soho street, literally here where we are now, by someone using a, a chef's knife. Um, now, obviously, uh, this description is, is kind of endemic of kind of the era that we're in at the moment. It was kind of 1960s. It was said she was seen talking to a young coloured man. When you look at the press, this is basically all, that, all they seem to latch onto. It's that kind of era. Uh, outside of a block of flats on Dean Street, suddenly she fell, clutching at the railings in front of the offices uh, as she crumpled onto the pavement. A man, he was six foot one inches tall, described as, here we go, uh, black or Latin. Yeah, I'll just let that hang there. Don't forget, this is an era where basically you could just turn around and say someone was foreign, and that's enough, that makes them suspicious. Uh, apparently he's wearing heavy dark rimmed spectacles and a chocolate brown suit, and he ran off in the direction of Piccadilly Circus, uh, which is uh, basically straight ahead, really. Um, and was said to be lying on the pavement, uh, surrounded by literally hundreds of people. Uh, the street was sealed off, and she was taken to the Middlesex Hospital, which is uh, uh, over in Fritzrovia. It's not too far away. It's actually uh, where the uh, workhouse of where Charlie Chergwin died. 
that's just over the road. Apparently she had wounds to her chest and stomach and she'd been stabbed in the heart. She died en route to the hospital, which is literally two minutes away. Um, so this is almost 60 years on, and this is one of those murders that hasn't been solved. Uh, so I'm doing some more research on that, and that episode, the unsolved murder of Margaret Halladine, or Anne-Margaret Halladine, will be coming to Murder Mile, hopefully soon. Maybe this year, I don't know. I've kind of prepped a lot of episodes for this year. <sighs> right, deep breath, everyone. It's nice doing this today. It's not too busy on the streets. The other day, I think, I think you could probably hear how busy it was on the other episode. It was really messy and noisy. I actually had a second recorder in my spare hand and had it kind of behind me so I could record the sounds of the street to kind of make it a better uh, kind of audio quality for you. But in the end, it just messed everything up. And, but now, it's nice. I think you can actually hear a taxi about to go past. He couldn't have heard that the other day. People walking by, it's nice and quiet. Uh, it, it is actually only about, it's half past 11 on a, on a bank holiday Monday morning, so it's actually quite nice. I think people have got hangovers. Uh, yeah, damn right. Um, so let's, let's go back to an episode that we uh, have covered before. So if we, we're, we're going to the end of the, the, where the NatWest Bank building is, just past the cash point, and if you look on your right-hand side, you will see a building, uh, called uh, 82 Dean Street, which is called Honey Poke. Good name, Honey Poke. It's kind of a very vague, kind of greyish building. It looks like very 1960s, Ugh, looks a bit horrible. But if you remember correctly, uh, this is the location of uh, the murder of Big Al, who was murdered by Richard Rhodes Henley, taking us back to episode 16, uh, Richard Rhodes Henley, the seaman, the seaman and the pawn peddler. I think one of my favorite episodes. Uh, back then, 82 Dean Street uh, was a, uh, uh, it was described as a bookshop, but as we know, it wasn't really a bookshop, it was an adult bookshop, which meant pornography. Well, that's what Soho's all about. Um, so, uh, Richard Rhodes Henley was 26 years old, he was a leading seaman in the Canadian Navy. Uh, he was a chef uh, and a chronic masturbator. Unfortunately, someone just walked past right then when I had to say the words chronic masturbator. They're probably wondering what I'm doing. Um, the, uh, the adult bookshop, so there's a bin truck going past, it's gonna be noisy. See, if this was a regular episode of Murder Mile, that truck would go past when I wasn't talking, because I, I edit them in especially. That went past right in the middle of a bloody sentence. Anyway, uh, if you remember the uh, pawn shop that was there, it was ran by a gentleman called Big Al. He was actually called John Allen Dixon Robinson, good name. On the morning of Saturday the 27th of October uh, 1956, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Rhodes Henley arrived here outside the pawn shop. He wanted to pick up pornography. If you remember, he had an addiction to pornography. He couldn't look at the same uh, pornographic image twice. These were the era of glossies as well. So uh, uh, printed photos uh, and 16 millimeter films. He waited there. Uh, the, the place didn't open up until nine. He went in there and he's like, I, I've ordered all this pornography. And Big Al was like, yeah, no problem. Come into the back room. He had to package them up into big boxes. Um, and then Big Al, uh, like he put them under his arm. He's like, okay, where's my money? It was about 7,000 pounds. And Richard Rhodes Henley didn't have the money. He shot Big Al to death. And as mentioned in the previous episode, St Anne's Court is literally where they went running down that street. 
uh, Richard Rhodes Henley on his crutches. And uh, if I remember, I think it was Stanley and um, Albert who were literally uh, chasing them behind. The old bloke and the asthmatic. Anyway, you know all about that episode. You can check that one out. I'm going to tell you something that uh, you won't know. So on your left-hand side, we're walking down just a little bit further, 21 Dean Street. Uh, you will see the Soho Theatre. Uh, nice theatre. It does does kind of good, good theatre pieces, but good comedy as well. And actually, it does good beers as well. Uh, so this is 21 Dean Street. This is a, a, not really a murder, but just something I found that was amusing uh, that I thought I'd uh, fill you in on. Um, June. 1943, so the height of World War II, um, a drunken French commando and an RAF airman were marched into a police station over at Tottenham Court Road. Uh, they'd been sl found slumped in the street by an airway, air raid warden, uh, absolutely arsehole, been drinking all day. Um, apparently they'd been setting off bombs which had shattered buildings in Dean Street, so basically here, 21 Dean Street, where this was, immediately opposite the Richmond buildings. Um, uh, at first the warden thought that they were dead, but when he woke them up, uh, apparently they're all slurring and they asked him for a match. He asked why, because they didn't seem to have any cigarettes on them, and they said because they wanted to set off another bomb. Apparently they were drunk and they were having a lovely time. Um, apparently they were taken to the police station, and even when they went to the police station, they said to uh, the detective uh, sergeant who was there, can I have a, a, a match? And the detective sergeant said, why? And they were like, bombs. I'm a commando. I know how to use them. Lovely. What a, lo what a lovely story. So apparently they were in Soho, they were bored, they had some explosives with them and they thought, well, there's not enough destruction going on. I'll just go and blow up everything. Lovely. Um, uh, actually, uh, just in front of uh, the Richmond buildings there, I know it's all looking nice and ahead is, uh, the Soho Hotel ahead. Very nice, very posh, very expensive. Um, I just thought I'd throw this little story in there. Um, I was once walking past this area before and uh, there was a crack addict in the street, as there always is in Soho, and he was having a big dump right in the middle of, right in the, middle of the street in daylight. And what I found out, because I was like, oh, this is weird. I seem to find a lot of people having uh, uh, defecating in the streets. What is going on? Because there is toilets you can use. Uh, apparently, crack bungs you up. Apparently, if you take crack, it does something to your stomach and it kind of bungs you up and it makes it really difficult for you to, uh, to defecate. So a lot, lot of crack addicts actually suffer from really bad piles, anal, be be anal bleeding and prolapses. You wanted to know that, didn't you? Yeah, of course you did. This is all, all the useful facts that you wanted to know about. Uh, just moving ahead now, walking uh, further south down Dean Street, just past Japes. And on the left-hand side, you will see some big Union Jack flags. Uh, and that is a building called Quo Vardis. Um, this isn't uh, murder-related, but I just thought, do you know, um, it's Soho-related, so I'll throw this in there. Uh, Quo Vardis uh, was actually the, the... Hang on, let me go down a bit on my notes. Yes, I'm using notes. I have to, because there's so much to remember here. Um, Karl Marx... Uh, actually settled in London in uh, 1849 and remained in the city until his death until 1833. Uh, now, if you look upon the building on the second floor, you'll see a blue plaque. Um, Karl Marx uh, at 28 Dean Street in Soho. This is where he worked on the first volume of Das Kapital. Apparently, when he was living there, he was incredibly poor. He was ragged, 
Uh, it looked like an absolute mess. Look, looked like uh, looked like he was homeless. But this literally was where he lived, and that's where he wrote the the first version of Das Kapital. Very useful. Um, just scrolling down a little bit more now. We're just going to go. You've got Delane Lee on the right hand side. You've got a very good pub on the left hand side called the Crown Two Chairman on the corner of Bateman Street. Uh, but the building I want to focus on. I'm just waiting until I get there so you can see it. Oh, that's where Royalty House is. There we go. So uh, number 72, Royalty House on the left-hand side. That's immediately on the junction of Bateman Street and uh, on, on Dean Street. It's literally on the corner. So uh, there'll be a story that almost certainly all of you have heard of, and that is Birkenhair. So Birkenhair uh, were the body statues in Edinburgh. Uh, they're, they're pretty much famous. Uh, they killed a total of 16 people and sold their bodies to the anatomist uh, Dr. Robert Knox for dissection. Um, if you can appreciate, this is the door. Okay, that seems to be my catchphrase on this, isn't it? If you can appreciate. Of course you can appreciate. <laughs> um, this was the dawn of dis dissection. There was an influx of medical schools popping up and what they needed was bodies to examine. There was a really high demand, but there was a really short supply of good quality bodies for them to examine. You can't just... They, they, they can't just take someone who's been dead for a long time. They need the bodies as fresh as possible. Therefore, uh, an industry cropped up uh, referred to as the Resurrection Men. So, obviously in Edinburgh we have uh, Birkin Hare, but in London we had the Resurrection Men, uh, who are, uh, not very much is kind of said about them, but uh, this, this actually, I would say they're more infamous. Uh, so they were uh, John Bishop, together with, not John Bishop the comedian, a different one, obviously, John Bishop together with uh, Thomas Williams, Michael Shields, who was a Covent Garden porter. I mentioned him in the Covent Garden episode, as well as James May, uh, who was an unemployed butcher. Um, basically, they would go around uh, stealing fresh bodies, but also murdering homeless young men and using them, because if they're missing, who's going to really report them? Um, one of those bodies was actually delivered here, so 72 Dean Street, um, back in this era, this was uh, 1830s, uh, 72 Dean Street was the Dean Street Medical School ran by Joseph Carpu, uh, who was a, 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 an English surgeon at the time and was very keen into kind of uh, dissection and learning from bodies. November 1830, um, Bishop of May uh, spoke to Joseph Carpu uh, in his lecture theatre, surrounded by around several students uh, present who all wanted to know how fresh this is their words, the thing was. That's how they referred to uh, this young homeless boy that actually they'd come across and they'd murdered. Uh, Carpu offered to pay eight guineas, which is a good price, and Bishop agreed to deliver uh, the body later that morning at 10 o'clock. That's how kind of standard this was. They were going around, they were murdering young men, they were delivering the bodies to medical establishments. Obviously, do you know, they, these medical establishments, they needed bodies, so they were looking the other way. As long as they didn't ask questions and say, where did this young man come from? They, they just didn't care. Um, it's unsure who the young boy was that they delivered. Apparently, he was only about 11 years old. Uh, many of them were homeless young boys found living on the streets who were hungry and broke. And these men would kind of lure them in uh, with promises of kind of food and work. They would murder them. Uh, they would normally murder them through suffocation. They obviously they couldn't strangle them, because if you strangle them, therefore there would be marks on the neck. Couldn't stab them because there'd be stab wounds, and therefore the doctor in charge of the medical facility would have to ask the question: 
what happened? What happened to this young boy? Whereas if they suffocated them, you could just say, well, I found, you know, it's winter, I found him dead on the streets. And they, you know, therefore, therefore uh, their body hasn't been reported missing. Therefore, no one knows that they're missing. Therefore, there's no evidence of how they died, uh, which is perfect for the uh, medical schools. Um, now, even though Burke and Hare uh, were charged with, apparently they killed uh, and delivered 16 bodies. The, res the London Resurrection Men, who were basically based in this area, but most mostly East London, uh, it is said that they murdered between 500 and 1,000 bodies. Um, that's according to John Bishop. That he, ad he admitted that in his confession. So even to this day, we don't know exactly how many young men and boys they actually murdered. Um, I'm just going to throw in a little break here in a bit. I forgot to do that in the other episode, therefore an advert probably creeps in in a really awkward way. But I thought I'd end this first section with a little story. Ah, oh, lovely. Just at the end of Bateman Street, so on your left-hand side, uh, is a lovely little pub, pub called the Dog and Duck. And this isn't murder related, I just thought I'd share this story with you. Um, back in 2001, when I was working as a runner in the film industry, um, it, when you were a runner, like I was paid 30 quid a week, I was on pittance, but you get to do a lot of interesting jobs. Um, we were working on a film with uh, Ray Winston. My mate Ray Winston, <laughs> the governor. Uh, really good actor, really lovely bloke. Um, we, we were working on the film and we knew that, that it was being put forward for loads of awards and things. So um, what, what the boss said, he was like, right, we need to film a kind of a, a, an intro for the awards. We're going to get Ray in there. We're going to do it in the upstairs for a pub because it was a film about pubs. Um, so uh, they were like, Mike, can you use a camera and a, a boom mic? I was like, yeah. He was like, they were like, great. Director's going to have the camera. You can have the boom mic. Uh, so I got in there, it was a tiny, tiny little pub, like a room probably about 20 feet wide, if that. It was just me and the line producer. And the line producer said, oh God, we can't be in a pub uh, with Ray Winston and not have pints. I bet get best get some pints in. So he ordered a pint, I had a pint, we started drinking. Turned out Ray was running late. The, he, the shoot he was on was over running, so you know, things started getting delayed. Um, the producer of the film turned up and said, uh, hang on, are you guys not drinking? Because we'd finished our pints. And they're like, oh God, if Ray turns up and thinks and sees us not drinking, he's going to think that we're really pathetic. So he was like, let's get the pints in. So that was my second pint. Um, and then the director turned up. That was about half an hour later. Ray's still not there. His car's stuck in traffic. Director turns up and goes, um, are, you, are you, you guys not drinking? We'd finished our pints by that point. And he was like, God, you have to get some pints in. Otherwise, Ray's going to think we're pathetic. Third pint. <laughs> By the time Ray turns up, his car's stuck in traffic. He turns up, really lovely guy, really sweet. Plays the hard man, but he's got a heart of gold. Turned up, we'd all finished our pints. He was like, you boys not drinking? Let's get the pints in. So by the time we started shooting the pro this little promo for him, I, I was on my fourth pint. And you try holding a boom mic in the air when you've had four pints of beer. Yeah, not good. Um, anyway, uh, just going to leave space here for a little break so we can pop in an advert so I can pay the bills. Enjoy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Oui. Hey guys, welcome back to uh, part two of Meander Mile, taking a little walk down Dean Street. I'm still outside uh, the corner of the Crown of Two Chairman, just on the corner of Bateman Street. Um, I'm going to open this up with, oh, that sounds weird, especially after we've just talked about the Resurrection Men. Uh, I'm going to open this up with a little story I stumbled across recently, just like the fingers that I mentioned just up the street. This is another, another one of those stories where I've caught glimpses of it. People who are local have told me about it, but I don't know much else about this. So this happened on the corner of Dean Street and Bateman Street. Uh, this was 1974. The date is unknown, but it is believed to be summer. Uh, apparently, there was a flasher on this street, so a gentleman going around exposing himself to people. Um, it's believed that he was a man. Um, it's, this is what makes it slightly difficult is uh, people have said it is believed that he was recently castrated uh, whether that's for, for medical reasons whether that was whether he did it himself whether someone did that as a kind of a gang retribution we don't know but he was going around the streets flashing his lack of genitalia to passers-by um, he was never caught um, and he was never identified so we really don't know who he is um, bit of an odd story that one um, anyway, moving forwards, uh, moving south down the street, and if you look on your left-hand side, oh, is this the right one? Yes, it is. So you'll see red awnings on the outside, hopefully immediately opposite Maird Street. Um, this is uh, 36 to 38 Dean Street. Uh, this is a, a little restaurant called Lobster and Burger. Obviously, these are two buildings that have been kind of mashed together, uh, but we're, th we're looking at 38 Dean Street. Um, I found this in the newspapers recently. This was from an advert in the newspapers uh, in 1832. So, I'll read you this. Dr. E.D. of 38 Dean Street, Soho, by his own peculiar mode of treatment, has attained the preeminence for the cure of venereal disease, whether long-standing or otherwise, which he enjoys the which he enjoys the gratitude numbers, meaning lots of people seem to like it. His serum or poison or potion this is uh, in quotes uh, can perform miracles not just evidence of truth this means i.e. making it work uh, to act co consistent with consumption rheumatism 
dropsy, headaches, and nervous irritation, in many cases bordering on mad madness, as well as eruptions, meaning acne, pains in the limbs, obstinate gleats, I've no idea what obstinate gleats means, uh, ulcerations, dimness of sight, nodes on the shin bones, ulceration of the throat, and venereal disease. It seems to be a bit of a wonder cure. So uh, I, I couldn't really find out what it was, actually, that they were, uh, that he was peddling here. But apparently, if you've got VD, um, and you've got access to a time machine, go back to the 1830s, go to 38 Dean Street, and apparently you've got a cure for pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Um, just scrolling ahead a little bit further now, so um, you will see on the left-hand side, uh, I'm gonna be a little bit quiet now because the restaurant is open. Uh, on the left-hand side is 40 Dean Street. Um, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a seven-story building, uh, red brick, red on the outside, and there's a, a big sign on there that actually says 40. That's the name of the restaurant. It is 40 at 40 Dean Street. Imaginative, yes, I know. Um, now this, this again, this isn't murder, but I just thought, you know, what I'm trying to do with Meander Mile is show you kind of things, uh, interesting crimes that kind of happened in and around the area. <sighs> and sometimes things that are just baffling and it all just makes you just go, why did this actually happen? Uh, this happened on the 4th of June, 2013, so relatively new. Um, uh, Nima Safai, uh, that's whose restaurant it was. It could still be today. Uh, it was a, a lovely little restaurant owned by celebrity chef Aldo Zilli. Uh, now, apparently, Sam Buttery, 22, if you watch reality TV, you may know that name. Uh, he was a former, con former finalist on BBC One's The Voice. That's that. I've never seen it myself, but that's that program where uh, you know someone sings, and the the judges are facing the wrong way, and then they, and then they, they do something, and, they, and then there's a big reveal where they turn around and they uh, the chair spin round, and then you go, ooh, so that's what the person looks like. I hate it. I think it's utter dog shit. Uh, anyway, Sam Buttery, uh, 22, was a former finalist on The Voice. Uh, he was part of Tom Jones's Lord Tom Jones, uh, a part Tom Jones's team in the first series of the inverted commas, popular BBC talent show. Uh, apparently he was walking along the street that day, 4th of June, 2013, uh, and it was said, drawing attention to himself when he sang It's De Lovely by Cole Porter as he strolled past the restaurant. Uh, apparently the owner of the restaurant, Nima Safai, was really upset about that. Uh, Sam Butterly, Butterly was livid when uh, the owner hurled abuse at him and told him to go to the gym. Um, Sam Butterly is a relatively large chap. I, I, you know, I would say he's probably no bigger than me. He's probably likes a little bit of cake, like I do. Um, uh, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, the singer, I'm going to read this. The singer who went on to star in the West End's uh, Boy George musical Taboo retorted, "Don't you know who I am?" I'm just going to leave that there for a bit. You're a finalist in the freaking voice for god's sake you're hardly a celebrity unfortunately as we heard with the other episode people who are in reality tv shows seem to have a highfalutin belief in themselves anyway that's his decision uh, so that's what he said he said don't you know who i am he then threw the contents of a, a glass of champagne in sophia's face lovely you really shouldn't do that Sophia then forcibly launched the champagne flute back at mr butterly causing a six and a half inch wound to his head and a cut to his ear the restaurant boss was jailed for 15 months at Southwark Crown Court after he was found guilty of one count of wounding without intent. 
Sophia was then told he would also have to pay £4,000 compensation to Mr Butterley, £2,000 costs and a £120 victim surcharge. I never understand victim surcharge. It just, it, it, it seems like a tip or victim tax. It's very odd. Uh, and, the rest, and his restaurant licence was suspended for 16 months. Um, apparently after that, Sam Butterley, uh, anxiety had really affected him by that point. Uh, he had to have plastic surgery um, on his ear and his cheek. Uh, and he apparently he is no longer performing. Uh, his agent has removed him from their records and he's back in the West Midlands living with his mum because it's apparently knocked his confidence so much. Um, odd story that one, I thought I'd throw that one in. Um, if we go down two doors down uh, on the left hand side you will see at 42 Dean Street immediately opposite Bourchier Street uh, you will see K Trey, uh, another little restaurant We've been here before. Uh, this is from episode 122, Saint Vastimitri and the Code of Silence. Um, if you remember, that was about the two separate gentlemen, Saint Vastimitri and Christos Giorgio. Uh, they were long-term friends. They've been in the Navy for years as friends. They'd set up a, a little cafe over in uh, Cardiff. Um, but things changed in 1973. There was a bit of a falling out. As apparently, uh, you know, one pound and ten shillings had gone missing from the till. Uh, and that kind of uh, caused a rift between the two of them. They, they were no longer talking anymore. They'd split. Uh, they hadn't talked in about six months. Um, what date was this? Uh, so Sunday, 24th of October, 1943. They hadn't spoke for about six months. Uh, both of them were in Soho. Both of them were kind of chronic betters. Soho was a place for kind of, you know, sex, drugs, drink, but also gambling as well. They both come here. Um, this was, uh, K-Trade was originally kind of a, a, a Greek Cypriot coffee shop that everyone who was Greek Cypriot kind of fr frequented. Um, they both saw each other there. They decided, you know what, let's break bread. Let's not, let's not cause a scene here. Because when people saw them, they were like, oh my God, they're going to kick off. But they were like, no, come on, let's break bread. So they had a coffee. Uh, they started playing cards together. They had a laugh. They went out for a couple of drinks and everything seemed fine. Morning of Sunday, the 24th of October, 1943, uh, um, uh, Christos had a real massive hangover that day. He decided to go out to the pub. He started keep, kept drinking even more, getting absolutely boozed up. He'd gone to the uh, Coach and Horses over on Greek Street, really good pub, um, and was boozing and boozing. He came out south of Romilly Street and came north of Dean Street. And kind of as he approached the corner of Dean Street and uh, Old Compton Street, and turned left, if I remember, he was, I think he was heading towards where, kind of where Dodo is at the moment. That's when he, he saw Savas Dimitriadis. A fight broke out between them and he was, um, Savas was uh, uh, stabbed to death. Uh, if you remember, with, see, it's that catchphrase again. Um, with that episode, obviously there was a code of silence where the Greek Cypriots would not talk to the police. Therefore, everyone was kind of like, no, we didn't see anything. Even though it was in public street, but as soon as they realized how petty this little dispute was, suddenly everyone was like, you know what? Sod them. They don't deserve to be protected by us. Lovely little story. That's uh, episode 122. Uh, immediately opposite K-Tray uh, is Bourchier Street. You see a little alley down there. We've been there before. Uh, this originally uh, used to be uh, Little Dean Street, but prior to that, it was Milk Alley. And that's where Mr. and Mrs. Birch lived who were the, um, 
they were the, uh, the as I mentioned in the previous episode, they were kind of the, the early version of Fred and Rose West. They were the lovely couple who, who um, beat baby Richard to death. Um, unfortunately, it was that kind of, kind of um, era. Oh, I've got another one that I totally forgot about. I almost walked past it. So immediately opposite, immediately opposite K-Tray, uh, 65 Dean Street, uh, you will see a white building and it's a Goldcrest post-production. Um, I'm going to stand over here so I can go into the, go into the shadow so I can actually read this properly. Um, found this out a couple of days ago. This is just one of those sad little old ones that I found. Uh, where this building was originally was 65 Dean Street. It's marked as 66 Dean Street now, but it's actually 65, 66. Um, 25th of June, uh, 1877. Uh, at Mulberry Street Police Court, Henry Hall, a bootmaker of 65 Dean Street, was charged with attempting to poison his wife and three children with laudanum, which is an, uh, an alcoholic solution containing morphine uh, and opium. Uh, and it, it was used quite a lot in that era as a painkiller, but also kind of as a, as a sedative as well. Um, apparently he was broken, he was unemployed, he was hungry, he was in a fit of depression. Um, he didn't think he could go through with life and he didn't want his wife and children to have to put up with anything anymore. So he purchased, uh, uh, he purchased the laudanum so he could kind of poison his children and, you know, left, let them drift off into a, a, a kind of the peaceful beyond. Um, unfortunately, he was so poor, he couldn't afford enough laudanum. So he kind of had enough for his wife and enough for his children, but it just wasn't enough. It made them sleepy, uh, but it didn't actually drug them. The neighbor came around, saw the children kind of collapsed on the floor, took them to a, a doctor who was nearby, uh, saw the bottle next to them. So he knew exactly what it was, revived the children. Um, so in the end, thank God, he, he ended up not killing his wife and three children. Uh, so uh, Henry Hall was found guilty. Uh, apparently he, they describe him as a man of good character. He was found guilty and was sentenced to 15 years penal servitude, which means hard labor, but he wasn't deported overseas. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? 15 years, that's a hell of a long time. And you know in that era as well, there would have been none of this, uh, uh, you know, half time off for, um, uh, you know, good behavior and all that, that crap. He would have been, uh, he would have been 100% Oh, in uh, in prison for that 15 years. Sorry, I was just trying to find myself a little bit of uh, 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 shadow here or shade because it's gone bloody hot. So uh, if we walk down Dean Street a little bit further, uh, on the right-hand side, you'll see a red awning that says Tom Cossey. Uh, and then you will see a gray building. Then you'll see Prowler, which does kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, leather gear for homosexual gentlemen. Lovely. Uh, I'm going to pop in there later on and buy, buy some, oh, some lovely spandex stuff. Oh, exciting. I'm not. Uh, fat man in spandex? No. Um, but if you look on the right-hand side, you'll see a very grey building with kind of brown brick above, very tall. That is six, um, 60, technically 61 Dean Street. So um, next to the grey building, you'll see a, a little tiny doorway in between. It's green, it's got loads of graffiti on it. It's a little doorway. That is 61 Dean Street. And it leads to a building behind 62 Dean Street. Sorry, that's very confusing, but it's the way it's set up here. So uh, that little doorway there, um, 
Anyone who knows Soho knows that uh, that's kind of uh, one of the brothels that's known in that area. Why? Because the signs are on the outside that say models upstairs. It's, it's unashamed. You can walk, uh, not that I know, you can walk in there, you know, you, you take into a 62, so a series of flats behind, and basically you can, uh, you can uh, um, have sex with prostitutes. Lovely. Anyway, this is a story that happened not too long ago. This is uh, January the 28th, 2017, um, at 61 Dean Street. So it would have been through those doors. Um, a young gentleman, well, not really young, uh, uh, Kevin Bainbridge, 32, of Braintree in Essex. Uh, he went to the brothel for the um, purposes of sex, obviously. Obviously, otherwise, why else would you go there? Uh, he paid £70 for sex. Um, when he got there, he wasn't really in the mood for it. Uh, it, 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 it this seems a bit of a weird story. Uh, apparently, the victim said the sex worker felt really sorry for him. Um, he'd paid £40 for sex, but he sat on the end of the bed uh, and indicated that he did not want to have sex, but that he just wanted to have a hug. Uh, she gave him a hug, and both of, both of his arms were around uh, him, and she allowed him to put his head uh, on her neck. Mr. Bainbridge uh, only had one arm around her. Uh, she gave him a cuddle with both arms, as mentioned. At this point, he pulled out a large kitchen knife and slashed her. Uh, he caused superficial wounds to her abdomen. Uh, she was screaming. Uh, apparently there's a, a pimp in the building who was meant to protect them. Um, but the door had been closed on the outside, so he, he couldn't get in. Um, Bainbridge at that point decided that he was gonna leave. He got up, he dropped the knife on the floor. Uh, the front door had been locked, he couldn't get out, and therefore he was immediately arrested. Um, apparently, he'd brought the knife from a Sainsbury's store earlier that day, and it, it, when he pulled it out, it was still in the packaging he'd bought it in. So he'd obviously gone there with some kind of intent to cause harm to this woman who he clearly didn't know. He admitted one count of causing grievous bodily harm. Um, Caroline Gassman, who, who was uh, the prosecutor, said uh, right from the beginning on the first hearing, he has expressed uh, he has expressed his remorse. This is someone who was calm, awaiting for the police. He didn't know what he had done. Um, the judge said there was a substantial degree of planning and premeditation, as you armed yourself with a very dangerous weapon. Uh, he was sent to prison for four years. So when was that? Um, 2014, so uh, he'll probably be out by now. Anyway, um, that was a lovely, cheerful story. I'm going to stroll down a little bit further. Um, so immediately opposite 62, um, you will see a green awning, uh, and uh, this is on uh, 45 Dean Street. So I should have said at the start, these street numbers are really cockeyed. It kind of, it starts at the top on the left-hand side and goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, down to the 50s, and then it goes up the other side. It's very confusing. Um, but uh, 45 Dean Street, uh, this is the Groucho Club. Now, it's a bit of a pretentious club. Unfortunately, I've been there. It's full of media types. I've been there a couple of times before. I find it really dull. I find it really dull. It's full of lovies. It's just, oh, oh. People seem to like it, but I really don't understand why. Anyway, um, Groucho Club. Uh, 45 Dean Street, originally, uh, if you go back to the 1920s, 1930s, uh, this was the headquarters of Billy Hill. Uh, Billy Hill was a gangster uh, connected with smuggling, protection rackets and extreme violence. He was one of the foremost perpetrators of organised crime in London from the 1920s through to the 1960s. His gang managed cash robberies in uh, and, es 
uh, and he defrauded uh, London's high society of millions of uh, pounds at the card tables of John Aspinall's Claremont Club. Uh, I'm probably not going to dive into that story in Murder Mile because you know me and gangsters, gangsters, I find them to be full of bullshit. Billy Hill, he will crop up in an episode coming up soon. Um, Britain, uh, Billy Hill was Britain's first celebrity gangster. Uh, apparently he was termed as the King of Soho, but if you've been on Murder Mile Walks, you know that loads of people are described as the King of Soho, and they're not. Uh, he joined up with Jack Spot, who we'll, we will hear about on an episode coming up soon, uh, and took over basically the city's gambling and protection rackets. From here, these were his Dean Street uh, headquarters. He also, if you go back to the, uh, the Chinatown episode, he also had another office down in Chinatown. Um, Billy Hill was the mentor to the uh, twins, Ronnie and Reggie Cray, who unfortunately you will be hearing on a lot on an advert that I'm promoting at the moment. Sorry guys, I need the money. Um, uh, he advised them during their early criminal careers. Ah, that was exciting. So uh, I'm moving on a little bit further. Uh, I'm gonna go to the corner of Old Compton Street and Dean Street, so on my left-hand side is Joe and the Juice, which is a juice establishment, and on the right is Prowler, uh, where you can get all of, your, all of your leather goods. Treat yourself, ladies and gentlemen. It's funny, on the, on, the, on the window out front, it's got lots of gentlemen who are clearly buff and do lots of exercise, and I think the idea is to say to people, hey, um, if, you, if you buy spandex pants, you're gonna look this good, and it's like, come on, guys. It's not. It's like the, the only time any of us look good is when we're wearing something that's black. If we wear anything else that looks white, it shows up how, how wobbly we are. Unfortunately, I'm a very wobbly person, uh, which is no bad thing. Eva likes that. So I'm on the corner, as mentioned, of the corner of Old Compton Street and Dean Street at the moment. Um, just to my right-hand side, you'll see a blue building with a flag outside. That's the Admiral Duncan pub where the bombing happened uh, in 1999, back in April. Um, just beyond that, from the last week's episode, is there's a white building down there, 66 Old Compton Street. That's where Dutch Lair was murdered. Um, but I took us to deliberately to this corner at the moment, because if we go back to episode 20, the bungled assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, if you remember that episode, I've done that again. It's that phrase again. I'm going to, I'm going to stop myself saying that. Um, uh, the Russian spies, assassins, Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun, um, they'd come to Soho. Obviously, they were planning to murder Alexander Litvinenko by getting uh, the highly radioactive polonium-210, tipping it into his tea, because obviously he was teetotal, uh, poisoning him, and then they could disappear out of the country before he gets ill. But being the, being the cunning assassins that they are, you know, undercover, trying to make it low key, from that episode, they came to Soho. Um, they, they went to the Piccadilly Hotel, which is literally just around the corner, uh, 65 Shaftesbury Avenue. It was formerly called the Shaftesbury, a four-star hotel. Um, before the murder, what they decided to do, they decided to dress for their night out in Soho. I'm gonna read a passage from that episode, if you don't mind. It says, rather than adopting anonymous black suits to help them blend seamlessly into the city, Kovton opted for his loud brown checkered suit. Um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Lugovoy opted for his loud brown checkered suit. Kovton wore the tackiest silvery metallic suit imaginable, made of the finest polyester, and with both men accentuating the look, uh, their look with uh, brightly coloured shirts, garish ties, day glow socks, 
and wrist jangling assortment of gold chunky chains, bracelets and sovereign rings. Their subtle attire was so shocking and eye-wateringly gaudy uh, that it caused the hotel staff to chuckle uh, with the hotel manager, uh, Goran Grigo, later commenting, the colours didn't match, the suits were either too big or too small, they just didn't look like people who were used to wearing suits. They look like, I think the expression is, like a donkey with a saddle. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great phrase. Uh, uh, so they came into Soho, they were wearing their, their kind of 1980s kind of uh, Miami Vice suits. They got on a rickshaw and they decided to have a lovely tour around Soho. And that was before their first failed attempted murder of Alexander Litvinenko. Fantastic. Um, apparently, uh, one of them is like very high up in the, um, the Russian parliament at the moment. Um, and I believe he has, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but I believe he has a, a TV series on in uh, Russia called Assassins, because apparently he's an expert, which we know is not true. Um, so if we're strolling down, we, we've just crossed Old Compton Street at the moment. Uh, Wasabi is on our left-hand side. Um, and if we just go past that on uh, the left-hand side, you will see a green building, uh, 48 Dean Street, uh, which is called uh, Rosa's Tie. You probably think, oh, we haven't been to a Thai restaurant before on Murder Mile. Well, uh, we have. This is going to take us right back to episode two. I know, all those years ago. So that is episode two. That's 48 Dean Street. Back to uh, episode two, the double, double murder at the bus stop club, it was called. Um, that building, uh, when was this? This was back, at, I haven't written down the date, but this was back in the 19, late 50s, early, I think it's early 60s, if I remember correctly. Um, 37-year-old Antonio ben Benedetta Mella, known locally as Big Tony. Um, this was originally a club called the, uh, the Bus Stop. They'd taken it over. They hadn't bothered to change the name. It was a clip joint, which meant that downstairs in the basement, um, it was meant to be uh, sexy ladies doing dancing, getting naked, lots of music, lots of drink. The problem was they hadn't got an entertainment license. They hadn't got uh, a sex club license, which is the new thing that apparently you have to have now. Uh, they hadn't got an alcohol license. They hadn't got a music license. So they couldn't do any of that. So basically young men, it still happens today at clip joints, young men lured in uh, for overpriced drinks, no music, no entertainment, no nudie ladies, which is a real shame. Eva doesn't let me look at things like that. Apparently, I, apparently I'm, only, I'm only allowed to have eyes for her, which is right, right enough. Um, that was their club. Apparently there was a falling out between Big Tony and uh, Alfred Melville, uh, who was his partner. Alfred had loaned him 300 quid, which was a good couple of thousand pounds by that point. Um, bit of a falling out between them. Big Tony decided not to pay back that 300 pounds. He was mocking Alfred Melville, saying, I'm not going to pay you back. Who, do, who, who the F do you think you are? Um, on that date, um, on the first floor, that was kind of their office. Uh, Alfred Melville pulled out his gun, uh, aimed it at, at uh, Big Tony, shot him three times in the back. He knew there was going to be retribution from this because obviously Big Tony was a gangster. Turned around, put the gun under his chin, blew his own brains out. Uh, Big Tony staggered from the first floor, so it's kind of the, the, the white building above, above Rosa, staggered out the blue door on the left-hand side and basically staggered down the street, down Dean Street. And if you look two doors down past the French house and past uh, Le Relais de Venise, a restaurant that I've never been to before, but I do, en I do enjoy doing my murder mile walks and finish them outside there. Uh, he literally collapsed just on the corner of Romilly Street 
and uh, Dean Street, and there's a little gutter there, and that's where his blood flowed down that gutter. Lovely, lovely, that's a great story. Um, immediately next to Rosa's, uh, you will see the French house. The French house is uh, 49 Dean Street, um, a place we've been to, a place we've visited a couple of times before. Um, uh, French House has, it, it used to be called the York Minster, it's now called the French House, it's got quite an interesting history. Uh, it was originally a German-owned pub called the Wine House in 1910. Uh, the French House got its name because Charles de Gaulle used it as the base of operations during World War II. Uh, de Gaulle reportedly uh, wrote his rallying speech uh, in the bar with the lines, France has lost the battle but France uh, has not lost the war. Yeah, whatever. Uh, it's also, um, it is also uh, populated by the painter Lucien Freud uh, and uh, Sylvia Plath uh, would go in there, do a lot of singing as well. Uh, apparently Dylan Thomas, the famous poet, wrote the first draft of his drama, Under Milk Wood, uh, and he left it under one of the chairs in there uh, after he'd been there on an all-day bender. Lovely jovely, we've all been there. Oh, and if, if you know uh, English music, the French house is also co-owned by Suggs from Madness. Ooh, exciting. If you're not from Britain, you're probably thinking, who the hell is Suggs? Who the hell is Madness? Um, but we've been to this location before. Uh, this was, so the former, lo uh, the, the, one of the last places that William Raven was seen. So uh, this was Thursday the 15th of October, 1943, the last sighting of William Raven. Uh, that evening, uh, he'd been in good spirits, apparently. He'd, you know, if you remember, he was that kind of small, elegant gentleman. Uh, worked for an outfitters over on Regent Street. Um, uh, it was wartime. He was uh, uh, an openly homosexual gentleman, which was quite a brave thing to do, especially in that era. But do you know what? He's in Soho. It's, it's a very, it's a homosexual place. So do you know, he could. Get, this is why he was there. He could kind of blend in, and the pub was kind of very well known as kind of a, a, a gay pickup point, especially for. Uh, sailors, servicemen uh, in that era. Do you know, you couldn't be a gay man in the armed services during World War II, but there were certain pubs that you could go to, uh, and one of them was the York Minster at 49 Dean Street, now known as the French House. Uh, apparently that evening, uh, he'd had a couple of bevvies. Uh, he'd met up with a friend of his, who we only know as George, who apparently was plump and small with a face caked with a thick white powder. Uh, the men met for drinks. Um, it was wartime and they met up with a couple of squaddies. Uh, these squaddies, two scruffy Canadian soldiers by the name of Henry Smith and George Brinicum. Um, apparently this is what uh, William Raven liked. He liked kind of, you know, scruffy kind of ne'er-do-wells. You know, the exact opposite of him. They met up, they had a couple of drinks. Uh, they went back to his flat, which was over just, just at the back of uh, Baker Street. Um, and that's where the murder happened. It was a murder and a robbery. And if you remember that episode, it was weird because they kind of, they stole his underpants and some socks. Do you know, they didn't steal much. It, uh, they stole some shoes and I think some trousers as well. And it, 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 it seemed to be a, the theft uh, for need as opposed to greed. Do you know, they, they, apparently they'd been absconded uh, uh, for a couple of days and that's all they had left. They, they needed new fresh uh, trousers. And that was the last time that uh, William Raven was seen alive. <gasps> We're coming near the end now. Cool, thank God, because I need to have a swig of Diet Coke. Um, if we scroll a little bit further, uh, you will see Romilly Street on the left-hand side, and just on the corner of Romilly Street uh, and Dean Street, you will see the Golden Lion Pub. We were back there, I think that was episode 
maybe 10 11 the dennis nielsen episode that's 51 dean street um it was there that dennis nielsen met paul knobs this was actually uh, monday the 23rd of november 1960 1981 uh it was dennis nielsen's birthday uh he'd taken half day off work he worked at the job center around the corner he came here and he was like i'm gonna celebrate and have a couple of drinks paul knobs uh, apparently was uh, a student at the university around the corner he was like oh do you know i can't be asked with uh, going to uh, college today i've got a hangover i'll just go and have a pint went into the golden lion met dennis nielsen uh and that's where a little relationship between them started. If you go back to that episode, they had a couple of pints together, had some fun, went back to Dennis's flat at 23C Cranley Gardens. Um, the two of them had sex, and that's where Dennis Nielsen strangled him. But Paul Nobbs was rescued uh, by Bleep the dog. Mm. If you want to know more, check out that episode. I think that is entitled Dennis Nielsen and the Sleeping Bag of Death. I moved out of the way then because there are some ladies walking past who don't seem to understand volume. They're, they're right next to each other, but they, they had to shout to each other and they're literally a couple of inches apart. Um, I am currently standing outside 56 Dean Street at the moment, uh, which is a white building on the right hand side. So immediately opposite Rem Romilly Street, right hand side, uh, it's the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital uh, registered offices. Um, this again isn't a murder one, but it's, it's one of these crimes that I just thought uh, we flag up because it's, it's, it's Soho-based. Uh, nurse Ian Wingrove, 32, uh, fondled two patients during a sexual health checkups uh, and has been kicked out of the profession. Nurse Wingrove was jailed for two years in June. This was, uh, this was uh, 2014. Um, after he, he was convicted of carrying out the attacks on patients uh, who had no known symptoms for any infections. One of his victims was from the USA and didn't report the assault for months because he thought that's just how checkups are done in the UK. Um, 9th of December uh, 2013, in this building right here, this was his, uh, his office, uh, a gentleman who is only being referred to as patient A alleged that uh, Nurse Wingrove masturbated uh, the, the patient's penis until it was erect and he ejaculated. I had to slow that down then and change my speed because a young child was walking past. This happens a lot when I do my murder mile walks that I will be, when, when I'm about to say something really horrific, uh, normally a child will walk past. Um, also, uh, there was another patient, 7th of November 2014. This was actually in a different office just up the road, uh, but still on Dean Street. Uh, uh, 24th of May 2014, uh, patient B was asked by Nurse Ian to remove his trousers and his underwear and then Nurse Ian proceeded to stroke the man's penis and pull his foreskin which made him erect, stating, ooh, lots of guys are getting hard for me today. Uh, apparently he was struck off, uh, but he was allowed to continue treating patients until obviously the inquest happened at uh, Colchester General Hospital, where he, uh, after that he was jailed. Uh, he was convicted of two sexual offences. Uh, what does it say here? Uh, it doesn't say how long he was... Um, no, he was just struck, struck off. It doesn't say that he was um, sent to prison for any point. Which is uh, interesting. You would, th you would think that given the fact that that is a sexual assault, he would be uh, sent to prison. Uh, no, it, no. He was convicted at trial of two sexual assaults, but it doesn't say how long for. Mm, haven't got it on my notes. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, that 
brings us to the corner of uh, Dean Street and Shaftesbury Avenue. God, that was a bit of a damp squib, that last, uh, that last story. Maybe I shouldn't, do, shouldn't have done that one. Uh, we're on the corner of uh, uh, Dean Street and Shaftesbury Avenue. I think it's because it's just because I'm tired. I haven't had my coffee. My brain's not fully working. Corner of Dean Street and Shaftesbury Avenue, and just in front of us is actually the uh, uh, the former bank, uh, as mentioned in the previous episode of Carmel and Schlitt, where John Esmond Murphy uh, committed a robbery under um, whilst he was bamboozled by uh, epilepsy, apparently. Um, but that is the end of this episode. Oh, I'm exhausted. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next week we're gonna we'll, we'll be the last one. We will do Frith Street. Uh, which is the street immediately to kind of my left, running parallel. Uh, lots of stories, you'll hear lots of stories that you may have heard before, but loads of other stories that, you know, you definitely haven't heard before, because you know what, I haven't heard of them. Um, so, um, after that episode, we will go back to our, our kind of usual setting that will be 10 to 15 regular Murder Mile episodes. Uh, as you can appreciate, it takes a long time to research these episodes. Um, what I do is I spend a lot of time trying to get all the details and the facts right, um, unlike, I'm going to be honest about this, some podcasts I know, when they're meeting up to, to see each other, they've admitted to me they do their research on the bus to meet each other. So if they're on the bus for half an hour, you're listening to an episode that has taken them half an hour to research. I think, I think your time is worth more than that. Definitely, isn't it? You really deserve the best, which is why I try and push out all the best and make sure you get the best episodes possible. And even if you don't enjoy Meander Mile, at least it's a little bit of entertainment just, you know, uh, in the interim. Anyway, uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, that was a bit of fun. I will see you next week for um, Meander Mile episode seven. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. 
<clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 